0: And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just looking at the first five verses, hear God's Word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves To prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that is so clearly divine because it speaks to every part of our lives and every part of who we are. Lord, give us open hearts to your word, and we especially, as we approach uh, the topic of sex and marriage, need your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, into wisdom, in, uh, to health and flourishing. And so we pray that you would teach us the good news of the gospel, that it would give us joy and light and, um, and hope and clarity for our lives. And uh, so I just pray for my brothers and sisters who are here um, that you would attend to each one of us now as we commit our minds and hearts to study your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are in our third week on uh, summer, summer of Sex series, I guess you call it, at CCB. Uh, three weeks on sexuality. And uh, last week we talked about uh, sexuality, kind of in general, kind of a biblical understanding of sexuality, and this week we're going to talk more specifically about the Bible's teaching about sex in marriage. It's quite practical, I think, and um, and uh, you know, there's many reasons uh, I'm sure that this could be a difficult topic uh, for many of you. In fact, I. It's, frightening to me to think of speaking to a room of so many different people, so many different marriages present here that I know nothing about. And now I'm going to speak about such a tender topic as sex, which um, for many marriages is, is one of the most uh, difficult topics in that marriage. And, uh, and so I just have to trust, and I think we all have to trust, that the Holy Spirit is present here with us. And that he is our teacher. And we have to trust the word of God. That I'm going to say the words that are here. And that he is going to take these simple words, just five verses. And take them and apply them and bring light and healing and hope and direction and the gospel. uh, Into each one of your marriages that are present here. And uh, at the very least, the result of this sermon may be... Conversations in marriages that are long overdue. And so I, I'd hope that we'd be open to that, of what God would say to us uh, this morning. And so um, we are going to consider three simple things from this passage from 1 Corinthians on uh, sex and marriage, and this is what they are is that sex is protection. Sex, second, sex is service. And third, sex is essential for a healthy marriage. Three things. Sex is protection, sex is service, and sex is essential for healthy marriage. And all things that I think are very different than what our culture teaches us about sexuality. So it's uh, it's so good for us to have time to reflect on this. And so our first point this morning is that sex is protection in marriage. Now, I should say that this passage I just read actually begins with a fairly debated verse. And you can see this here in verse, uh, verse 1, in, in this, if you have the passage right before you. This is what Paul says. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, colon, and then there's a quote begins, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now, the reason why this is kind of a difficult passage is that colon and those quotes do not appear in the original Greek text. And so, some people, the question is, when Paul says it is not good, uh, it is not that it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Is that his opinion, that it's not good for a man to touch a woman? Or is he saying, the thing about which you wrote me, and now I'm going to quote your letter that you wrote me, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. That's something the Corinthians believe. Does Paul believe that, or do the Corinthians believe that? Now, the majority of modern commentators tend to think that it is a quote from the Corinthians, because they say, you know, Paul in other places, he says people who forbid marriage are are false teachers, and so he's very pro-marriage. So it would be very odd for Paul to say something like, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And I have to say, you know, and obviously that's the opinion that the ESV takes. That's why they put that phrase in quotes, is they take that interpretation. And if you have an ESV Bible, I would say almost every verse of that Bible you can trust as a faithful rendition of what the original languages say. On this point I tend to disagree with the ESV and um, I think this is a place where they got it wrong because I don't think it would be strange for Paul who's a single man who's given himself to the service of the Lord and later in this chapter is gonna say that it's actually better to be single than to be married I don't think it'd be strange for him to say it's good for a man to not touch a woman it's it's good to be a single person and actually You know, It's actually kind of strange. If you think of, would the Corinthians believe that it's good for a man to not touch a woman? If you remember the chapters we've just looked at, the Corinthians have a man who's sleeping with his stepmom and everyone's okay with it. And then last chapter, apparently there's a number of men in the congregation who uh, are sleeping with prostitutes and they're okay with that too. I think it'd be very strange for them to be like, oh, it's not okay for a man to touch a woman. There's a a little too much men touching women going on in the Corinthian church. So... um, I think that what Paul is saying uh, is that a single life is a, good, is a good thing. He's not saying marriage is a bad thing, but he is saying that a single life is a good thing. And so it's in this context, in a, a culture, Corinth is similar to our culture in many ways, highly sex, uh, sexually charged, it was a port city in the Roman Empire, you know, you think of a port city a lot of people are traveling through. You know, people are on ships. They're, they're away from their families. Um, all kinds of prostitution uh, happening in, uh, in Corinth. And so Paul says in this context in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And what Paul says is that being married, according to Paul, protects you from sexual immorality. Now, the Bible says that there's actually a lot of reasons for sex in marriage. You know, having children, um, you know, it's fun. Like, you read this book, Song of Songs, is just a celebration of, of the joy of the pleasures of sexuality. These are all things that the Bible celebrates. And, um, but the Bible is also very practical and candid and says that sex helps resist lust. And you may not think that's very romantic, that the reason we're going to have sex is to prevent you from, you know, from a spouse from struggling with sexual immorality. But um, I think, I, you know, I know that there are, are many young men who struggled with lust and pornography, and one of the greatest helps to them was getting married and having a, a place to uh, enjoy sex. And... Um, It was a great help to them in fighting that sin, and you know, for those of you uh, who are wives, you've probably heard that verse before, that by having sex with your husband, it helps him to, you know, resist sin, and that might be offensive, kind of offensive to you, it's like, that's why I'm gonna have sex, and why is that even a problem? Why do I even have to deal with that? And let me just try to encourage you of what God is doing by saying that. Because this is actually a really basic principle of the gospel. There's a, there was an old uh, Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, he's kind of a hero of mine, who wrote a, um, a sermon called uh, the, the Explosive Power of a New Affection. And what he says is that the way that the gospel works is that the way God changes our lives is not by simply saying no to us, right? He doesn't say you shouldn't lie. What God does is He reveals the truth to us. And we fall in love with the truth. And our life becomes so filled with light and the beauty, and we we become truth lovers that now we don't want to lie anymore because we love the truth. It's not just saying, don't lie. It's, here's a new love. And what God is doing is when when He says that sex is a protection against sexual immorality, He's saying he's not just saying no to your husbands. He's replacing uh, your husband's sinful desires with a beautiful, flourishing desire, which is you, the wife, and that that's a beautiful thing. That it, it is the healthy desire that he's replacing. It's the new affection. It's the new pleasure. And God always does that. Is he doesn't just say no to our old desires. He replaces them with new desires. And, you know, I should say that um, the gospel, you know, it also applies for men, as who, uh, you know, in a culture where sex is surrounding us. One of the things that the scriptures say, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, when it talks about men, uh, it talks about husbands. It says that husbands, you should love your wives as Christ has loved the church and given himself for her. And that Jesus washes his bride, the church, with his words. It's this amazing picture where it's saying that husbands, the way you speak to your wives makes them more beautiful. It washes them. And then it says that Jesus washes his church so that he could present her to himself as this spotless bride who's without blemish. And it's this profound truth that God says to husbands that if you are struggling with sexual morality, you know, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. How do I be disinterested in that? The Bible says as you love your wife, as you cherish her, as you nourish her, the Bible promises she will become more beautiful. As C.S. Lewis puts it, love bestows loveliness. And what our world tells us is that if you're beautiful, then I will love you. The gospel says that God loved us first and then we became lovely. We became beautiful. Love comes first. And so for both men and women, as they bring into sexuality in a a marriage, it's an application of the gospel. How does the gospel shape how we view one another and uh, enter into this relationship? I also want to say, I think that for this passage where Paul says that two people should get married and have sex to help resist sexual immorality. This is not just for men. This is, this is for wives as well. Sex is a guard as well for wives. And sometimes we think that men are the physical ones that, you know, are always wanting sex, but actually that union is a guard for women as well. And, you know, when I was in seminary, I, I took a class on marriage and family counseling, and. Uh, one of the things that was really profound, actually, I think this is the only profound thing from this class that I remember. It was a particularly good class. But one of the things that he said was that men and women are actually looking for the same thing in sex. It is union. And I think that we think that men are physical and women are relational. But the reality is that both men and women are desiring union. And it's almost like you think about a turnabout, that they're coming into this dance. And they have different on-ramps into the turnabout. Men have an on-ramp that tends to be physical, visual, you know, uh, and women, their on-ramp tends to be more relational. It takes uh, relational engagement of talking, but it doesn't mean the women don't care about the physical aspect. It doesn't mean that the men don't care about the relational aspect. It's that they're coming together into this union. And for both people, it is a guard. And so, um, this is one of the practical things that the Bible teaches us that our culture says nothing about. But it's deeply important. Now, I know that some of you will say, well, that's a helpful guard for married people. If you're a single person, you say, you know, this doesn't help me much. And um, I, I know that's a, that's a big question. It's interesting that this passage comes in a, uh, a chapter that is largely about singleness. And actually, when we return to this in August, we're going to have a whole sermon on singleness. And actually, it's interesting that you might think about it and be like, wow, the married people are so blessed. But actually, this verse begins by saying that singleness is preferable. And so there's a lot to say about that, and so I'm going to devote a whole sermon to it in August. But um, for now, in a culture that is flooded with sexual temptation, do not let pride keep you from this means that the Bible says that he has given to protect us from sexual sin. Regular sexual activity in a marriage is a guard against the sins that would destroy your marriage. The second thing we learn about sex In marriage, in this passage, is that sex is service. Sex is an act of love and service in the fully Christian sense. And actually, I think that this is probably the biggest difference between the Christian understanding of sex and the world's understanding of sex. Because the world says that sex is about getting some, you know, I'm it's about getting off, you know? It's about pleasure. It's about me taking pleasure. And the gospel says that sex is about using my body to communicate security to another and to give them pleasure. It's about communicating security to another and giving them pleasure. It is about service. And um, it's very interesting. The two categories that Paul uses in this passage for thinking about sex as service, are paying a debt and exercising authority. Which are very strange to me, but I think they're insightful. So the first one is paying a debt. You see this there in, in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now that word that's translated as conjugal rights is the word really means to pay a debt. Actually, this word only appears two other times in the New Testament, and they're both in settings where someone's, like, paying taxes to a king. And they have this duty that they owe, kind of, to their, you know, their king or to their lord, and that Paul says that we should view sex that way as a duty. Now, our culture does not like the language of duty. And the reason for that is because our culture is a culture of authenticity, Right? You need to, you start with your feelings and you have these genuine feelings, and what you do with your behavior is an expression of who you are on the inside. And so duty says, I'm doing something even if I don't feel like it. But you know, it's very interesting. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his great book, Mere Christianity, he has a little part where he talks about learning to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's got a great line where he says, you know, it's oftentimes it's one of those things where you just have to st- start loving your neighbor even when you don't feel like it. Even if you don't like them, you start caring for them and what happens is the feelings follow. And there are many things in the Christian life that are like that. Actually, I was talking to Tommy Hanna uh, this week and he was talking about reading your Bible and he says, you know, there's a lot of times you're like, I'm not sure I want to read my Bible and then you do it and then you're like, oh, I connected with God and I learned so much and it was definitely worth it and it always turns out that way that I need to do something and I trust God that the feelings are going to come and then God blesses the duty. And I think that Paul is saying that this is true with sex and marriage as well like all good things, it requires discipline. It requires attention. And I want to say to you that some of you may say, we have major issues in our marriage. You don't even know what you're talking about right now, Pastor. Uh, And you're just going to say that we're just going to have this duty to have sex with each other? I'm going to let the Holy Spirit deal with that one, okay? But... I want you to just think for a moment, what if you decided that it is my duty in this marriage to give pleasure to my spouse? That is my duty. What would that do to your marriage? And not just sexually, of course. That should be all of life. I want to give pleasure. I want to give you comfort. I want to give you joy. This may be a place to start. And it is possible that obedience to this passage could mean the renewal of your marriage. I mean, it's in the Bible. These aren't my words. I didn't come up with this. This is what, this is what the Bible says. And I'll just say that if that frightens you, if, if you're the person I'm speaking to right now, uh, then start with prayer. Like all of, obeying all of God's commandments, it begins with prayer. It begins with trust and by faith. Now, let me give one warning about that. The duty is to serve. This does not give anyone a right to say to their spouse, you have a duty to do what I want. And this is the second interesting thing from this passage about how Paul describes service, is exercising authority. And you see this there in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does now i'll just be candid with you that every time that i've read that verse up until this week i thought that meant that when a spouse wants sex they can demand it from their partner anytime they want and the partner has to do it because they have authority over their spouse or their wife or husband And then it occurred to me that if we think that way, is that what authority is in the Bible? Jesus teaches clearly about what authority is in his kingdom. Actually, if you go to Mark chapter 10, he says you should not exercise authority like the Gentiles do when they lord it over others. But if you want to be first in my kingdom, then you should become a servant. And then he has this great line where he says the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you know that title, Son of Man, in the Old Testament was the title of the true king of the world. He says the true king who's given authority over all the nations of the world comes to serve. And so when the Bible says that you have authority over your spouse's body, it means that you are responsible to make sure that they are satisfied sexually you are responsible for them. It's not about demanding, it's about giving. That's what authority is. You use your leadership, you use your authority to bless others. That's how it works in the kingdom. Sex is mutual service and self-giving. And when we view it that way, that is when it becomes both glorious and most pleasurable. When our greatest pleasure is giving pleasure. That's the vision that the Bible has for us for sex and marriage. And I should say that this vision about sex as service, it's a giving away, it's about caring for others, has to be the vision that we give to our children of what sexuality is as well. And um, if you turn to page 3 in your bulletin, I, I put a quote there. This is from, uh, um, what's his name, Schnark, uh, who is a... Uh, I, I've quoted him a couple times. I'm not sure you should get his book. It's, it's kind of R-rated book. But he's a sex therapist who has, even though he's not a Christian, he's come to the realization that sex only flourishes in lifetime committed relationships. Marriage, essentially. He says it's essential. And he has this great quote. This is what, this is what he says about um, how our children and teenagers learn about sex. When we believe that adolescence is the time of sexual peaking, we are indirectly espousing sex between strangers. You see, our culture says good sex happens between young people who just fell in love. Instead of sex is something that you learn over a lifetime as you learn who your spouse is and learn to love them and learn to serve them. It's totally different. And so when we think that the best sex happens by young people, then we are encouraging sex between strangers. This pervasive but misguided view creates topsy-turvy relationships between teenagers and adults. How can parents and educators have credibility about sex when kids are supposed to have more sexual potential than we do? When parents hide their sexuality from their kids, it perpetuates the myth that older people don't have sex, and makes kids anticipate having as little sex as their parents seem to have. Why should they listen to someone who apparently has no recent first-hand knowledge on the topic? I think that's profound. (laughs) And this leads us into the third point I want to make this morning, is that the Bible teaches that sex is essential for a healthy marriage. Sex is essential for a healthy marriage. Doing what Paul says in these verses, you just apply these verses to your marriage. What's going to have to happen? You're going to have to start talking. You're going to have to talk about sex and about your marriage, and you're going to have to talk about things that are very vulnerable for you fears and desires that are scary to talk about. And yet this is an essential part of what God wants to do in our marriages. And, you know, actually I just, two weeks ago I, I listened to a, um, This American Life, you know, This American Life is a, a radio show, and they had an episode on, um, on the big issue of consent, which is a big issue in uh, college campuses around the country of uh, what, uh, qualifies for consent when two people want to sleep with one another and more and more they're saying that especially a girl has to say, yes, I want to have sex, that's the only way you can get consent from a girl, It it's very interesting, the radio show was, was in the, this uh, college discussion group, they're having these classes where they're talking to college students about sex and about um, uh, how they talk about it and what qualifies for consent, and the interviewer was asking this young man about, well, wh- you know, where did you learn about sex? from. And all the guys said, I learn about sex from my buddies. You know, they're the ones, we talk about it and they tell me. And, and it was very interesting because everything that he learned about going into sex, he learned from his buddies. And, and so he said, you know, one of my buddies said, forgive me if this is slightly graphic, but he says, you know, my buddy says girls like being kissed on the neck. So I had my girlfriend, I was kissing her on the neck. And then like a couple months in, she said, why are you always doing that? And he's like, my buddy said that girls like that. And the interviewer was like, so you realized that women are all different. And the only way to find out about having, how to have sex is to talk to a specific woman. And actually, over a lifetime, to talk and discuss. This is completely void from how our culture views sex. And yet, the Bible's vision of a man and a woman life, spending a lifetime together exploring and learning about who they are is absolutely beautiful and um, it's thriving. It's flourishing. Health demands talking to each other and listening to each other with gentleness, with kindness about tender matters. And I'll say, for some of you, if this is not a part of your marriage to talk about sex, you're in for some of the most thrilling parts of your marriage. It is scary, but it is thrilling. And you know, it's interesting, in this passage, Paul acknowledges that there are periods of time where uh, a married couple may not have sex. You see this here in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then you come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says that... When a married couple abstain, it should be for a limited amount of time. And he says it should be an intentional time. They should be praying together. And probably one of the main things they're praying about is their marriage and talking about their marriage. And saying we need to work on our marriage. It's not just floating along, drifting through marriage and ignoring the problems, but facing them. There's an intentionality to it. Paul says that letting that period go on and on is opening the door to the evil one into your marriage. A sexless marriage that goes on and on is opening the door for the evil one. In many ways, your sex life is a mirror of the rest of your marriage, and that's why it demands attention, how you communicate, how you enjoy each other, how close and trusting you are, how much you serve one another and seek the other's good. So, we've said a lot, and you may say, wow, I don't even know how to respond to that. Penny, I, I don't even know any of your marriages, what they're like, I don't know. <laughs> how do we respond? I want to encourage you that, like all of God's word, if the scriptures convict us, address us, our response is always simple. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. We name our sin. That may be a discussion after this sermon in your marriage. And naming it and talking about it. That's what repentance is. Is bringing sin into the light and say, this isn't happening. We need to talk about this area. And then faith. Faith is trusting that Jesus has died for all of our sins. And whatever your sexual history is that you brought into this room, in Jesus, it can be, if there's any shame there, it can be washed He washes, and He forgives you, and He embraces you, and He cherishes you, and He uh, nourishes you. And then, faith also says, Jesus, give me the Holy Spirit. When I'm going to have a difficult conversation with my spouse, I don't even know what I'm going to say. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is puts words in your mouth, gives you the words to say. And so you trust the Holy Spirit is going to give me words to enter into these uh, difficult conversations. And as we do that, we will find uh, the great joy that sex and marriages gives us protection from sin. It's an experience of service in the gospel, love for each other, and it's about health and security. May God grant that to the families in our church. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word so short and so challenging. And Lord, I thank you that you know the marriages present here. I pray that some word uh, from 1 Corinthians would bring new life, hope, and healing into the marriages present in our church. And may our marriages reflect the gospel. May they be shaped by the gospel. May they have hope and joy because of your grace to us. But may they also shine to the world the love of Jesus for his church and our love as the church for Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.